The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Father, the words we just sang they ring so very true. There's not a one of us in this room or in all the earth that can earnestly say that we somehow initiated this relationship by loving you first. Even those of us that grew up within the church always knowing and hearing the gospel and singing Jesus loves me this I know we if we're honest there was plenty of time when we didn't love you. We loved the world and we loved ourselves, and we loved our sin. And so we charged hard after all of that. But it wasn't until that moment, Father, when we felt your love and that love manifest itself and you're calling us to life. It wasn't until then that everything changed. When that but God came crashing into our own darkened lives. And suddenly we loved the things that we once hated and hated the things that we once loved. So we thank you for your goodness and your mercy and your love. We thank you that we sit here today as a redeemed people because of that love. We thank you that we have this revelation of yourself to consider this evening and we pray, Father, that you would show us just one more picture of who you are and who we're meant to be as a reflection of that. So reveal it to us now, Father, and do it in a way that has real effect and consequence in our life. We don't just want to know some things. Father, we want to be changed and we want to look like the pure and spot, spotless and wrinkle-free bride that Christ Jesus deserves. So, Father, do your work. Do your work by your word and in your spirit. Do it for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Okay, as I, as I hinted to this morning, we're going to continue our study of Ephesians chapter 2. I, I knew that I had written, when I, went to, when I went to bed on Friday night, I knew that I'd probably written more than I could bite off on a Sunday morning. And then as I considered it yesterday morning, it just grew and grew and grew, and I realized pretty quickly that um, it was two sermons. And so I figured now would be a good time for us to all jump in, jump into it together. And so we're going to consider tonight this third picture. You remember that the Apostle Paul is painting for us a number of pictures of what the church is meant to look like, beginning with citizens in the kingdom of God and then moving to members of the household of God. And eventually we're going to land here in with the reality that we are not only members of the household of God, but that we are parts living stones, in fact, of the very house that he is building. So go ahead and open your Bibles again to Ephesians chapter 2. Just to get our bearings about us, let's uh, begin in verse 19, and we'll read all the way through verse 22 again. Go ahead and stand your feet, please. Hear now the holy word of God. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, 
built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place by, for God by the Spirit. All God's people said. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Built on the foundation. Verse 20 says, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So as I said, Paul moves here from the idea of members of a household to parts of that very house, a house that he's building himself. And now I told you this morning that it's very clear that what he's doing is he's, he's progressing and he's elevating and he's showing us great improvement with regards to our relationship to God and our relationship to one another. That with each one of these new pictures, we see an increase in intimacy with God, in privilege before God, and responsibility one to another. And you might hear this and say, well, that doesn't, this doesn't sound like much of an improvement. You said we were members in the household of God, and now all of a sudden, what, we're bricks? We're stones in a building? So lest you think that this is a step backwards and I was confused, or lest you believe that maybe he's talking about something is inanimate, as just bricks. Look to verse 21 where he says, in whom, that's in Christ, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Bricks don't grow. Generally, buildings don't grow. Only living things grow. Animals grow. Plants grow. People grow. And so it's very clear that what he's talking about here is something that's living and active and vital, something with life moving all throughout it. We're a thing that grows. And then as I've made reference to you earlier, we're not just rocks, we're not just bricks, we're not just stones, but we're living stones. That's what we read in 1 Peter 2, 5. You yourself are like living stones and are being built up into the household, the spirit, excuse me, you yourself are living stones and are being built up as a spiritual house. So beyond the fact that we are not some dead, inanimate, lifeless objects, the very purpose for which he is building this house elevates the honor that comes with it. We are not just any old house or any old building. This thing is moving on to the crescendo that I pointed you to over and over and over again, namely that the building he's building is a habitation for himself. There can be no greater honor for man than this, that we are part of something that God is building so that he can come and dwell. I am beyond excited about next Sunday morning's sermon as we talk about us as the temple. And I'm hope, God willing, I hope to show you the picture of God's desire from the garden, God's desire to dwell with man. And then when we consider all that was lost in the garden and you move forward to the church and you see what he is restoring, and then you move to the end of the story and you see what the promise is and you realize where we stand in this continuum. It is an honor beyond comparison. And so, no, this isn't a step downward to say that we have moved from members of the household to parts of the house because the house is something incredibly honor honorable. It's a spiritual house. So that we not only live with God as our father, but he himself comes to live within us. So again, as Peter said there, we are the stones or the building blocks in this house that he's building. It tells us that this house is built upon a certain foundation. It says, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. 
So we do well to consider, what does this mean for us? Who are these foundational stones that we're built upon? And we spent a lot of time talking about who these apostles are. We've covered it at great length, but it might be helpful to look to when the church had to replace one of the apostles. You remember that Judas had taken his own life. So that when we get to Acts chapter 1, they say, we need to replace this man. So listen to these words, Acts chapter 1, verse 26. So one of the men who has accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. Someone who has been there to see the whole of Jesus' three-year earthly ministry from the baptism through the resurrection. We must call one of these men to ourself for a specific purpose that they can bear witness to the resurrection because the whole of the church, it rises or it falls on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If he's still dead, there is no church. If he's still dead, there is no salvation. So it says one of these must be called. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who is also called Justice. Please somebody name your kids Justice with a U. Who is called Justice and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them. This is not gambling. This is not paper rot scissors. This is a way in which they can discern the will of God. That they cast lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered among the eleven apostles. And so we see very specifically not just what the purpose of the apostles are in giving witness to the resurrection, but what the requirements are in order for someone to be an apostle. They had to have been with and seen the risen Christ. They had to have been set apart by the calling of the Holy Spirit. And then they were authorized messengers for Christ. Now, we're not familiar with the idea of an apostle today, but it is a true ambassador when it goes out in the authority and the power of the master that has sent them. And we see this through the apostles as they not only teach the authoritative word of God, but they heal and, and, and do miraculous works for the express purpose that people may know that they can believe this story that they teach. And so we see that this is the men that he has called. These are the apostles. And we know that Paul, who writes this letter to us, he himself is an apostle. He says is one that was born at the wrong time. He counts himself to be the least of the apostles. But he had encountered Jesus Christ, the resurrected Lord, on the road to Emmaus, and he, excuse me, on the road to Damascus, and he had radically transformed his life right there. Not just transformed him into a Christian, but making him into an apostle to the Gentiles. So that's the apostles. What's a prophet? Well, the prophet, in somewhat similar fashion, he is also a spokesman for God. They're the ones whom God has put his uh, word within their lips. Thus saith the Lord. Now, I warn people. People throw around all the time, God has said to me. God has said to me. Those are the most dangerous words in all the earth. Because God doesn't say partially authoritative words. Every word that God speaks has full authority demanding absolute obedience and so many a men have abused that God has said to me when what they really mean is I have an inclination or I am in some way convicted but these are the men who can truly say thus saith the Lord we get to the book of Hebrews and we read that long ago at many times and in many ways 
God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. It was through these men that God was delivering his word to his people. And so he's saying here that the foundation of the church is the apostles and the prophets. Now, when I just casually read through this text, I immediately think that what he's talking about is the Old Testament prophets and the New Testament apostles. That what he's talking about is Jeremiah or Ezekiel or Isaiah or Daniel or Hosea or Amos or Joel or one of the Old Testament prophets. And they, of course, were pointing forward to Christ. That's absolutely true. Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation, and he is the end to all the promises of God, both New Testament and Old. So it's true to say that Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Isaiah were all pointing forward to Jesus Christ. Not an untrue statement in any way. But I would draw your attention to the fact that he lists the apostles first here, not the prophets. If he's talking about the apostles who have come and built on something that the, that the prophets had begun, I think he would have said the prophets and the apostles, but he doesn't. In addition to that, go ahead and look at the next chapter in your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 5. He says that what the apostle Paul has done, he's come to reveal to us this mystery. Remember, a mystery now is not something that only really smart people can figure out. It's a thing that was otherwise concealed and is now revealed to all God's people. He says that the mystery, the mystery of the inclusion of the Gentiles, it was not known in other generations, but has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Seems to me that he's saying that thing that was once concealed has now been revealed in this time today, not in the previous generations, but it's been revealed today to the apostles and to the prophets. Keep flipping in your Bible to Ephesians 4, chapter, uh, verse 11. He's speaking here of God's gift to the church. It says here that he gave the apostles, gifts to the church now, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ. You're all smart people. You have a Bible. You have the Holy Spirit within you. You determine for yourself. And it's not going to fundamentally change what we understand this text to be saying. But it seems clear to me that he's talking about New Testament prophets. There's a number of them named here in the New Testament. And we see the Apostle Paul giving instructions in other letters for how we're to receive and understand prophets that come. He doesn't just talk about false prophets, although there's plenty of them. But he says in 1 Corinthians 14, speaking of rules for prophets. In verse 29, he says, let two or three prophets speak and let the others weigh what is said. Skipping down to verse 37, he says, if anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. He says, you want to know how you can tell whether it's a true prophet or a false prophet? Does he preach the same message that I preach? No prophet can say something other than what the apostles have taught. And so there does seem to be a primacy or a superiority of some, some sort with regards to the apostles and even the true prophets. But both of them appear to be the men, and in the case of prophets, sometimes women, whom God has entrusted this message to. He's revealed this mystery to them. They were gifts from God. Gifts for God, from God expressly during this first century. Because you have to think about it. The early church, the first century church, they were living while the apostles were writing. These letters, the, the canon of scripture that we enjoy, they didn't have it. Many churches may not have even had one letter to gather together and study or, or even a gospel 
that they could really consider together. They would have had this story that was passed on and it was told. It originated, yes, with the apostles. There was this apostolic tradition and the authority that came from their word. But as a gift to the church, it seems to me that he raised up these prophets that would have been in various churches to authenticate and to preach and to remind people of this gospel. Again, irrational, reasonable, smart people, you decide for yourself if I'm wrong here. But the important thing to recognize is it was upon these. If I'm right, then it seems to me that it's a close of the canon. Once the scriptures were compiled and complete, there was no longer a need for these prophets any longer. These words were this, this apostolic writings and the gospels were making their move all throughout the churches. And so that season came to an end. Just as God doesn't call apostles any longer, he's not raising up prophets any longer. Now hear me very clearly. God can do whatever he wants. God can raise up men to be prophets whenever he wants, but that doesn't seem to be what he's doing. Seems to me that all he desires for us to know is written here for us in this book. And it's the job of the Holy Spirit to come and bring us to a remembrance of these things and an understanding of these things and specific applications of these things. So he says that these are the foundation. We do well to also remember that a foundation is only laid once. You don't lay multiple foundations during a project and you don't lay a foundation later. The foundation goes down in the beginning. In the beginning, you dig down to the bedrock, if possible, and you lay your foundation. And what Paul is saying here is that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Now, some of you that know your Bible, you may be thinking, wait a minute, isn't there a place somewhere where the apostle Paul says there's no foundation other than Christ? You're right. 1 Corinthians 3.11 says, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So what gives? Is Jesus Christ the only foundation? Or is the foundation the apostles and the prophets? Now some people seek to reconcile this by saying the apostles, excuse me, the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, that that of is a possessive of that what he's actually saying is the foundation which belongs to the apostles and the prophets. But that doesn't seem to work for me. In addition, if you fast forward to the end of the book, you get to Revelation 21. This beautiful text in verse 3 that says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be their God. And then he goes on to talk about this beautiful bride coming down to the land, this, this heavenly city, this heavenly Jerusalem coming down to earth. Verse 12 says that it had a great high wall with 12 gates. Verse 14, and the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on the 12 foundations there were 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. So the end of the story seems to say that this great city, it has 12 foundations, and those foundations are none other than the apostles. I also remind you of what Jesus said to Peter back in Matthew 16, 18, after Jesus, excuse me, after Peter confessed that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, the Lord looks at him and says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So, I say those words. I say that you are Peter, and upon this rock I shall build my church. And immediately our little Protestant hearts say, no, 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 that's not what it means. 
That's not what it means. It's just a confession that Peter says. It's when Peter says, you are the Christ, that's the foundation on which he says he's going to build his church. But if you look at the text, and you know that Peter is Petros for rock, and he's clearly doing a play on words here. He's clearly making a play on, on words. And we're, we're so resistant, though, because we're so quick to prove we're not Catholic. And, and, and we know the faulty teaching of the Catholic Church that says that Peter himself has some position as, as the head of the church or that some apostolic succession where you've got Peter as the apostle among the apostles and he's the great pope and then he hands down as the, the bishop of Rome some position, authoritative, even at times an errant position as the head of the church. And so immediately we throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, no, it's just a confession. Doesn't have anything to do with the man. That confession just happened to come out of the voice of this man. But that's not what Jesus seems to be saying. And it's not what he seems to be saying in this text right here. He's saying they are the foundation. So I believe very much that what he's saying is the apostles are the foundation. And Peter, you yourself as the head of the apostles, in a very real way, you're part of that foundation, that it's them. Specifically what God does in and through them. We're reminded that Jesus didn't just come down to buy a bunch of billboards on the side of a road. He didn't just write his gospel message in the sky. He didn't bury a time capsule in the ground. He worked through these men. He called them. He set them apart. And he entrusted this word to them. They were uniquely called and gifted and used of God. So that they would come not just to deliver his message, but to authenticate it as he worked through them. And not just to receive the message and then record it in this book, but to help carry it to the ends of the earth. That was his plan for them. It wasn't just, I'm going to tell you something, now let's play the telephone game. It said, I'm going to use you to carry this from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And the Apostle Paul seems to have this awareness that he had been set aside from within his mother's womb. Much as, speaking of prophets, if I can go back to the Old Testament, Jeremiah in the same way. He says, you anointed me and you called me and you built me and you set me aside for this purpose right here, that you could use me in this way. Now, for some of you, it may seem like I'm splitting hairs. Like, why does it matter? Why does it matter if it's the message versus the guy? Why, why does the guy have to be involved? And here's why I think it matters. Because if we just make it about the message and we don't talk about the way in which God uniquely gifted these men, look, common men, John MacArthur wrote a book, what's it called, 12 Ordinary Men or something like this? Ordinary dudes, unqualified in and of themselves. But if we make it just about the message and not what he did through these people, we are always at risk of removing this thing outside of time and space. I've told you before that I have concern that so many within the church, there's only a couple of meaningful moments in history. It's Jesus died, Jesus rose, I believed, I go to heaven. There's a bunch of other stuff in between there. There's a bunch of other stuff that God has done, and we remove it. We rem remove his redemptive plan and his redemptive work. We forget the fact that it wasn't just a miracle that Christ Jesus died and rose again. It was a miracle that this word didn't get squashed out by the Romans. It's a miracle that all the men that have desired to destroy this church over the ages haven't been able to do it. It wasn't just one miracle involved in this. Every one of us, miracles. So we need to be reminded this was a thing that he had done, not just in a stating of a 
of a gospel message, but in a calling of these men and that he worked and he endowed and he empowered and he inspired these men in a unique and unrepeatable way that they could deliver to us the truth of Jesus Christ. But we can't remove the men from the picture. Otherwise, what's the book of Acts for? Why didn't we just stop with Jesus uh, risen and ascended and then skip straight to the letters of Paul? Why did we have to have all these stories in the book of Acts about the way in which the apostles worked? About the tribulation and the suffering and the trials and the miracles and the way in which this gospel went forth to the ends of the earth? Because it's not just about the message. It is the message which saves. But he used these men. If you think I've made too much of that, just ignore it. That's okay. But I, I think that it matters. That it's not just the message, but the men themselves, the prophets themselves. But that doesn't address the original question. The original question was, is the foundation the apostles and the prophets? Or is it Christ Jesus and none other than him? Well, I think it's all wrapped up here in this same verse. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. What makes these prophets and, and uh, apostles the foundation? It's nothing other than their connection to the cornerstone. If you're not connected to him, if you're not coming through them to them, then there is no value there in anything that they have done. It is Christ Jesus himself that brings this salvation. Only Jesus can save. Paul can't save you. Peter can't save you. None of this foundation can save you other than that corner foundational stone, Jesus Christ himself. But it's through them. What is their purpose? It's connect you to the cornerstone. It's to bring you to the cornerstone. How do you know what you know? Jesus didn't write any of these words. He worked through these men to reveal himself to you and to show himself to you and to invite you to trust in him. That's their usefulness. It's only in their connection to him. That's why it says Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So we're not familiar with this. Even those of you that, that build in modern times, the idea of a cornerstone. But a cornerstone, it was the first stone to be laid. Like today, you shoot lasers and I don't know what else you use, but all types of, of technology that you use to figure out where your slab is meant to sit. But then you laid first this stone, this straight and good and right stone, and it was the, it was the plumb line on which everything else rested. If you got the cornerstone wrong, the whole thing was going to be jacked up. The cornerstone was the key stone. Everything else was set based on this. And so he seems to be saying the apostles and the prophets and the whole thing, it rests on this. This is the key to all of it, the key foundational stone. And if you hit that stone wrong, again, I say, everything else will be completely off from that moment. Many of you, you've started construction projects before and you've realized, look, my daughter just moved into uh, her first apartment, which means I got to put together a bunch of cheap furniture. And inevitably what happens is I get to step 16 and realize I messed up at step one and what do I gotta do? undo everything that I've just done. If the foundational stone is wrong, everything that comes after that is wrong. That's why he says in verse 21, it's in him, in whom the whole structure is being joined together. Verse 22, in him, you're also being built together. You remove the stone, you remove the cornerstone, and everything else is at a loss. It will lose its shape, it will lose its structure, it will lose its purpose. You can end up with a building if you build on the wrong uh, cornerstone, but it won't be the church. You can build plenty of things. 
You can build plenty of beautiful things, but apart from this cornerstone and this only cornerstone, you don't have the church. He's what makes us a church. He's what defines for us what a church is. He's what holds us together. He's what gives us our shape and our direction. When do churches lose their way? When they become detached from the cornerstone. The one that sets it all for us. The one that's making us fit to be a temple of the holy God. How's my voice back there, David? Good? Good. So Isaiah 28, 16 says this. Behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion. Now this is a text that's quoted in Romans 9, but I want to take you back to this. Behold, I am the one who has laid a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste or will not be put to shame. And I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line. You want to have the righteousness of Christ in this church? Then Christ Jesus must be the cornerstone that sets the plumb line, that sets the angles, that gives us our shape, that holds us together in our form. And so it's healthy to remember that you, can, you may be able to recite every single word that Peter or Paul or James or John ever said. But if it, those words don't connect you to Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, you're not part of the church. It's only to the degree to which they lead us to faith in him. And show us what it means to follow him, that we are members and parts and stones of the church. Now, you all know, any of you that have ever built anything, you know that there's one thing you don't skimp on. It's the foundation. I made the mistake of deciding I was going to build my own house. I, I was convinced that I was going to save billions of dollars. And instead, all I did was lost billions of hairs, lots of effort, lots of hours. But I remember as I sat down when I had this many pennies and asked how much house can I build for this, there was one thing we weren't going to skimp on. You ever come to my house, you know what kind of floors we have in our house? Stained concrete. We can go without carpet. We can go without tile. We were not going to skip on the foundation. You skimp on the foundation, everything else falls apart. And sadly, that's what many people do. Any of you that have ever shopped for those houses that go up real quick, they're in a rush to make a profit. They skimp along the way. And it may look gorgeous. Top of the line appliances and the paint looks good and the molding looks good. And what you find out pretty quickly is all of this stuff was to cover up for the lack of a sound foundation. Again, sadly, that's what so many do. Eventually you move in and you recognize this thing isn't built on what it needs to be built on. That's not just what many home builders do. It's what churches do from time to time. They're in such a rush to get something built quickly, so they just throw it all together. And oftentimes, they do this not knowing they're not on the foundation of Christ. It's on some other foundation. And many of them, good things in and of themselves. A desire for benevolence. A desire to serve their community. Or maybe something that's even fluffier and, and less valuable than that. Maybe it's just built on the personality and the persuasive, persuasive nature of their pastor. Or maybe it's the love that the congregation has for each other. But if it's absent, the cornerstone. If it's absent, Christ Jesus, as taught through the apostles and the prophets. We must make sure that it's the true Christ. Claiming the name of Christ won't get you far if it's not the Christ of Scripture. If it's not the Christ that has come and revealed himself. And so it is only upon that foundation that we will ever build anything that will last. Psalm 11.3 says, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? 
I've watched as many righteous and good and decent Christians have watched as their churches have crumbled because it was built on the wrong foundation. And there's nothing you can do. You can fill a church with all the righteous people you can find with good intentions, with good desires, with a love for God and a love for their church. But if the foundation for that church isn't Christ Jesus as revealed in the scriptures, it's going to all come tumbling down. Again, sadly, we've seen these things. So why would people reject this? Why in the world would you not seek to build your church upon the rock, the only immovable rock? Why would you choose something else? Well, because he's offensive. Psalm 118.22 says, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. They rejected him. Why? It's offensive. 1 Peter 2, verse 6, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. He goes on in verse 8 to say that he is a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. The one that we build our life upon, others stub their toe and they fall over him. They reject him. Now, again, many, maybe not by name, they, I, I don't know of any professing Christian churches that have a sign outside that says, we reject Jesus Christ as our foundation. Every one of them would claim that he is their lone foundation. And yet, whenever you get to who this Jesus is, you learn that so much of what comes with following this Christ, what it costs to follow Christ, what it says about you and your sin to confess Christ. The sense of utter dependence that comes with following after Christ. The speed with which Christ builds, which is often slower than they desire. That all of these things cause them to throw him out as the, as the cornerstone and begin building something else for themselves. Because it all seems so simple and foolish. Look, when you... They interviewed me to come and be your pastor. I remember they were asking, what is your plan? What is your, and I didn't know. I mean, I wrote a bunch of stuff and I look back at it and I don't think any of it's true. What I should have said was, Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, we'll build on him. We'll build a church based on the teaching of the word of God and nothing else. I don't have any rabbits up my sleeve and it's not going to be sexy and it's not going to be exciting and they're not going to call me out to conferences to teach pastors everywhere how to build their church because you know what that would look like? Trust Jesus and teach his word. That's it. Man, that's all I got. That's all we got. So this is the foundation on, that, on which this whole thing is being built. On which we ourselves are being laid, laid as these living stones. Verse 21, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows. Guaranteed, it grows. It may grow slowly, may grow at a pace that's almost imperceptible to you, but the growth happens. It is happening. It will continue to happen. I told you this morning, we do well to remember where we are in the history of the church. We're not the beginning and we're not the end. We're somewhere in the middle. We're carrying a baton for a season that we're going to hand on. Hand on. And so for the whole of this thing, there's going to be growth happening. And growth can be painful. Any of you that have ever had a little athlete, you know that they'll complain about their knees and their joints aching. It's their growth plates as they're expanding and growing. Growth is painful. But we trust that Christ Jesus himself is building this church and he's using us, of all people, us. So this word that he uses here, joined, it's... I think Paul just loved to make up words, man. 
I mean, it's like a super duper compound verb where he just takes a couple of prefixes. Actually, in this case, it's one prefix and then two different verbs, one of them meaning betrothed and one of them meaning to say. And he puts before it the idea of being called together or with. He smashes it all together and it's this word joined that Greek people tell me you can't find anywhere else in all the world. The word's only found here as joined and we find it again one other place in the New Testament in this same letter. In Ephesians 4.15, says that we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. So we see here this living nature, this active nature. As you, you think of ligaments, you think of joints, you think of the coming together of the body, that this is the kind of joining he has in mind. And you know just the remarkable way that God built your body. You think about the way that a... Uh, 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 your, your shoulder comes up into the socket or your knees or a hip is just a remarkable thing. The way in which that ball goes into that socket is just it's perfectly fit together. Just a, a really remarkable thing in nature. He's saying that's the way you people are fitted together. If any of you read from the old King James translation of the Bible, this text we're considering this morning, it says, In whom all the building is fitly framed together. There's a fitness to it, the, the way in which he, he, he puts us together perfectly with, with purpose and with intent and with care. And he's, he's selecting every stone for its proper place in this thing. Have you ever seen stonemasons do their work? We, we're somewhat unfamiliar with this because today most people you use bricks and bricks are all just rectangle and you just grab any old brick and it fits perfectly. And, and then you've got mortar to smooth out anything that, that doesn't fit perfectly. That wasn't the case then. You're working with stones. You didn't have mortar yet. These weren't perfect rectangles. You had to figure out which stone goes where. Those of you that have ever been to my house, you know that on the whole front of my house, I've got this stone facade, and I didn't have a walkway up to my front porch. And so Brent Harlan said, hey, man, let's take some of those extra stones, and we can make kind of pavers a walkway up to your house and so we sat out there in the darkness of night and we tried to figure out you know we had the advantage of we did have some some quick set and some mortar some stuff that could hold it together but we were trying to be we we're trying to match the pieces I think this is very much a picture of what God is doing because the pieces aren't all interchangeable he's putting you together in a way that's meaningful and has great intent but I point something else out to you Anyone who's ever seen a stonemason do their job, you know there's also a whole lot of chipping and chiseling and whacking that happens. And if you're watching it for the first time, it looks like just smashing. Like, I don't know how these guys do this. They'll hold a stone in, their, in one hand. It's not like they're drawing a line. They hold a stone in one hand, they pull their little hammer out with the other and just smash. And it fits perfect. And it's a, it's a messy thing and it's... It looks like a wild and a reckless kind of thing, but he's molding together. By the time he's done, you look at it. I think about my fireplace, same stone. I watch this guy. I'm like, dude, you're wrecking these rocks. I paid good money for those rocks that you're just mashing to a pulp. And then when he got done, I realized it's like a mosaic. It's gorgeous what he's been building. This is the work of God. He chose you for a specific purpose. He's fitly fitting us together into a house suited for his temple. And at times... He's chipping, and he's chiseling, and he's smashing. And he does all this through the working of his word. As you think about what the author of Hebrews says, Hebrews 4.12, this is going to be a little more precise sounding, but it's the same thing. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword 
piercing to the division of the soul and the spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. You see this sharp double-edged sword piercing from bone and marrow. He's coming in and what is he doing? He's slicing away that which doesn't act, doesn't belong. He's exposing us, naked and exposed, and he's slicing and he's cutting and we don't have any control. That's the picture of what he's doing and we know how very uncomfortable this kind of process can be. And the reality is that if you're content being any old family, and if you're content being any old house, any old building, then you won't put up with this. The only way you're going to undergo the surgery of the knife is if you see value in it. The only way you're going to undergo the chiseling of the hammer is if you see value in it. But if you don't recognize what he's building as a temple for himself, the minute the chiseling starts, I'm out. This hurts. But the chiseling is necessary. It's, it's, it's a proper part of what he's doing if we're going to be this temple, this temple for his Holy Spirit. I remind you that when we get to chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5, and he talks about the fact that we are the bride of Christ, we see similar work there as well. Ephesians 5.25 says that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water of his word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that we might be holy and blameless and without blemish. It's the same picture. He's washing away what doesn't belong, not just for your sake, although holiness is happiness, but that we might be a pure and a precious and a spotless and a wrinkle-free bride that he welcomes to himself. So therefore, we don't just tolerate the work. We don't just tolerate the chiseling. We rejoice in it because here's the alternative. Do you know what I noticed about that stonemason when he worked? If he picked up a stone and he chunked it to the side without touching it with a chisel or with an axe or with a hammer, whatever he used on it, it meant that thing didn't have a place in what he was building. So you've got the option for God to leave you as you are. But the problem is if he leaves you as you are, you don't have a place in what he's doing. He's cast you aside. He's not disciplining you and shaping you and molding you and strengthening you for the purpose that he's called you to. So, not only do we ourselves put up with this molding and this shaping, we've got to be patient with each other because he's not done with you yet. And he's not done with me yet. And we know that this work can be very messy. We're going to refinish this stage, and we know the amount of dust that's going to be generated from this is going to be unheard of. We're going to have to put up tarps and do things to protect the rest of the building. And then the construction down there, the noise. The inconvenience, that's the bathroom I go to, guys, and now I can't use it. And so it's, it's hard to be around somebody that's being chiseled on and poked on and pried on. And you may not be in the shape. I may be looking at you thinking, where in the world does this big boulder of a dude fit into what God's doing? But we patient. We trust that he is doing something that's going to be beautiful when all is said and done. And we resist the urge at all times to jump in and build something quicker. Again, I tell you, we can build something here without an ounce of prayer, without any dependence upon the word of God. We can build something and we could build something that the world would call beautiful, but it wouldn't be the church. If we want to be the church, the church in which the spirit of God dwells. We put up with the chiseling and we're patient with each other as God is working on us and we trust his plan. 
We trust his plan as he brings somebody in and we go, I don't know where that guy fits. We trust that he's going to make it work. Knowing that in the end, it is he that does the building. You know what? I wrote too much again. I'll just plant a seed for you, and then you consider this for yourself as you prepare to come back next Sunday morning. It says the whole structure grows into a holy temple of the Lord. In him, you also are being built together. It is God who does the building. I want you to see the passivity of us in this whole thing as we are brought out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of light. As we are made by God, we are taken from children of the enemy children of wrath, friends of the devil, to sons of the Most High God, and as we ourselves are being built into something beautiful, we need to recognize that it is of God, that God is the one who does the building. And therefore, if God is the one who does the building, all the pressure is off of us. We need not be clever. We need not work ourselves into knots. We work hard, but we work hard in complete dependence upon God and who he is and what he's promised to do, knowing he's going to finish the work when all is said and done. This takes all the pressure off of us then to not get mad that we're not yet who we ought to be. Beloved, I have full anticipation that we're going to look back in 5 or 10 or 15 or 20 years and look at us as we stand today thinking that we are something special. Knowing, I, I know that what we have here is special because of God's grace, not because of ourselves. But I fully anticipate that we look up in the decades to come and we look back and say, wasn't that cute? Look at what God has done. Because we trust that he is the one doing the building. Our job is to submit. Our job is to follow his patterns. Our job is to be patient with one another and then watch in the end this beautiful thing that he's building. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. Father, I thank you that my voice has held up this evening. I thank you for this room full of saints that had a desire, Father, for one more bite at the apple of your word. Before they brought a close to this Lord's Day, they wanted one more opportunity to gather together with your people and to sit under your word. And so I pray that you bless them for this. I pray that they be strengthened and encouraged. I pray that you equip them. You know what the rest of the week holds. They don't and I don't, but you do. So I pray that there would be something that you have revealed to us in this word that we would look backwards and say, God was preparing me on Sunday night for such a time as this. And that we would then be able to tackle it with courage, with assurance, without any hint of a stutter step or a backpedal, because we're trusting in you. Again, Father, I pray your blessing on these people. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.